Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Beyond 28 Podcast, presented by Chase, a show designed to keep the conversation around black history going all year long. We're going to continue to celebrate the excellence, the joy, and the love that is black culture and the black community. Each month, a new episode will explore the influence and impact black people not only have made historically, but also continue to make each and every day. I'm your host, Mark J. Spears, so kick back and relax as we get right into it. Like the returning of a particularly fragrant perennial flower, the smell of barbecue, the whiff of grilling food, and the smell of charcoal burning is an evocative reminder that the summer is upon us. In most black neighborhoods, backyards brim with smoke from Memorial Day through Labor Day. Impromptu kickbacks, full-fledged cookouts, folding tables with ribs, and hot leaks definitely mark summertime in Oakland. July 4th is the apex. The days are long and the weekends can stretch out to feel like a century. So the 4th, with its extra day off, might as well be a month. It's what we've waited for all year, after COVID kept us locked inside, longing for the day when we could just kick back with friends like we used to. Now, those days have returned, at least for the vaccinated. Hopefully those days will return full time and the summer barbecue season will return back in full force. To some, it's a sign of freedom gain. That said, freedom is a tricky word for black folks, especially as it relates to the 4th of July. The problem is that all this talk about freedom in 1776 often neglects our history. The American Revolution did not extend to the plantations. We would not technically be freed for another 90 years. All persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of the state, the people whereof And we're still fighting for our basic rights today as regressive voter laws passed by Republican-controlled legislators threaten to blanket this nation with what President Biden called 21st century Jim Crow. So let's be careful when we talk about freedom and America. In 1964, there was an actual Freedom Summer where nearly a thousand volunteers came to Mississippi to register black folks to vote. This was just prior to the passage of the landmark Civil Rights Act, which was supposed to end Jim Crow once and for all. Before it was over, four civil rights workers were dead. The three civil rights workers who disappeared in Mississippi last Sunday night still have not been heard from. A search has thus far produced... Gores would be injured, dozens of black churches bombed. Why? Because we wanted freedom. So yeah, that word has meaning to us in ways most cannot understand if they themselves are not black. Whether it's July 4 or another day, for that matter, black Americans are forever reminded of our complicated relationship to this country. We don't need the racial civil unrest after the police killing of George Floyd to jog our collective memories and trauma. We know how this country often doesn't love us back. Perspective can have a profound impact on the ways we view our country and its birthday. For me, my family and colleagues like Douglas, Our perspectives are based on complete and unfiltered view of America's past and present, of its tragedies, as well as its triumphs. 
This episode of Beyond 28 Explorers celebrates and mourns the concept of freedom and what that means to black folks in the Bay Area and across the country. Examine it from multiple perspectives. First, we'll talk to Supervisor Shamal Walton, San Francisco's first black president of Board of Supervisors who seeks reparations for those San Franciscans who are descendants of slavery. Next, we'll speak with the NAACP's president, Derek Johnson, who's making a whole lot of good trouble in the spirit of John Lewis as he fights for voter rights as the venerable organization's leader. Finally, in our rewind section, we'll travel back to those hot Oakland nights of the late 60s and early 70s when the Black Panthers were holding it down and a young Bobby Seale was finding his way. All along the way, we'll ask what freedom means or what freedom should mean to black women and men in the Bay Area and beyond. Welcome to Beyond 28. When Supervisor Shimon Walton was elected president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors in January, he became the first black man to hold a position in the board's history. A significant first for a city whose own African-American population has of late felt pushed aside by the forces of gentrification as it sees the smarts of tech billions remakes the city that raised into a playground for the wealthy, often at odds with the city's black and brown populations. Walton's mandate is to serve the underserved and act as a voice for the voiceless, using his powerful perch to push through legislation, aiming at offering his constituents a fair stake in the system. With the district composed of Bayview, Hunters Point, and much of the city's traditionally underserved African-American Southeast, he has pushed through legislation that has caught national attention for its progressive appeal. In February of 2020, Walton put forth a resolution calling for the reparations for the city's African-American population. In June of 2020, during the nationwide George Floyd protests, Walton introduced a resolution to ban the San Francisco Police Department and Sheriff's Department from hiring officers with a history of serious misconduct. In October, he introduced the Karen Act, C-A-R-E-N Act, which would criminalize the making of fraudulent 911 calls motivated by racism. He joins us today on Beyond 28 to discuss what freedom means to San Francisco's African-American population and weighs in on his many legislative successes. President Shimon Walton, welcome to Beyond 28. How you doing, man? Doing well, man. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Appreciate it. So my first question to you is, the task force has been set up to study the financial compensation and other ways to make reparations to the descendants of slaves coming to the larger city a major step. What do you think will take to make such a program a reality? And do you think the majority of San Franciscans will take up the mantle of this now? Well, first thing, I think uh, it really takes legislation and it takes a mandate from elected leaders and policy leaders to put something in place that's going to be tangible and that's going to last through the test of time. And so that's why we legislated the working group. And so since we got the legislation done now, it's going to take the will of the task force and, of course, the entire community to come together. Well, 100 percent of my colleagues were supportive of the working group. Uh, that is an indication of how excited and supportive everyone is to make sure that we as black people see reparations here in San Francisco. So to approve such a message can be a double-edged sword and that some activists worry that reparations will give white America the sense that after receiving payment for past injustice, that this is where things will end. 
How do you balance the need for justice from past wrongs while continuing to make the effort to look forward and deal with systematic racism at large? I think that that's a fallacy to state that if we receive some form of reparations as black people, that that means uh, folks will say they got everything that they deserve. And so now we can take a step back and continue to let the travesties that exist in our country continue. The fact of the matter is, one, reparations is not just about a payment. And I know that's what a lot of people think, but we're looking at reparations in terms of addressing all the injustices for black people here in San Francisco. Reparations policies are gonna address education, home ownership, overcriminalization, uh, black businesses. There probably will and should be some form of universal payment, uh, universal basic income for black people, but surely it shouldn't stop at that. And the fact that we receive reparations is something that has been long owed to the black community, but we still have a long way to go even past reparations for true equity. I think people really have to understand what happened to us as black people here in this country, which spilled over to us as black folks in San Francisco. When you take someone from their country, you take away their language, you take away their name, you take away their ability to reproduce, you take away their ability to receive an education and you make them work and they work for free uh, and you get rich off of their labor and they were never provided with, with real opportunities. That is a recipe to make sure that a wealth gap exists. And so reparations is the only way to right those wrongs and, and to reverse those negative impacts. Folks have never been given an opportunity to address the gaps and and wealth that exists here in San Francisco, particularly black people never been provided the opportunity at the same level of home ownership, never been provided the same opportunities in terms of education. The main thing that needs to happen from this reparations plan and reparations package from the task force is we have to truly address that wealth gap and make sure that we do something and put something in place for black people in San Francisco to be able to build generational wealth. Obviously, it's not always just about money because we've lost a lot of culture yeah. over the years. We have to do everything we can to rebuild that and to bring that back. I grew up in San Jose, and I've been living in the East Bay since 2009, primarily in Oakland. But I've always been fascinated by what it's like for, for Blacks in San Francisco. used to love, man, going to Yoshi's on Fillmore Street. Nah, that's gone. Uh, 1300 on Fillmore was my spot. That's gone. What is it like to be a black person from San Francisco right now? And is, is that feel more and much of that history dissipating? Well, definitely much of the history in Fillmore is dissipated. And a lot of our folks were pushed out during the redevelopment era, particularly in Fillmore and quite frankly, across San Francisco because of either cost of living, family moving out of the city. They have, for some reason, had to leave San Francisco and once they left, their talent leaves with them, uh, the culture leaves with them. And so we don't have the the, the renaissance, uh, black renaissance that we had in a Western edition like we used to. As you know, they used to call Fillmore the, the Harlem of the West. And we, we've lost a lot of that culture. You know, it takes a lot to right the wrongs of history. I'm curious, Supervisor, how did you get into politics and who were your uh, biggest mentors coming up? Well, my biggest mentor is Fillmore Graham, and he started the Omega Boys Club back in 1966 in Vallejo, California. He was one of those mentors that just stood by me in and out of juvenile hall, being expelled from school. He never gave up on me and hundreds 
of other youth, as well as Dr. Marshall here at the Omega Boys Club in San Francisco, who when I had the opportunity, fortunately, to go to college, uh, made sure that my tuition was paid so that I didn't have to struggle and, and suffer being from a single parent home where my mom did everything she could. But I said that to say that you know I grew up a certain way, had mentorship, which was very important for me. When after leading a couple of organizations and working for city and county of San Francisco, I ran for the Board of Education while I was the executive director at Young Community Developers. I wanted to work and make sure we put policies in place that set our young people up for success and created learning environments that got them excited about learning and address their individual needs. And I figured we can make a bigger impact for community on the Board of Supervisors if my community would have me. And we were fortunate enough to win and be able to make change through the legislative process you know, I wanted to switch gears for a moment and talk to you about the larger theme of this episode, which is freedom. In the context of our discussion on reparations as well as the stands you've taken against police abuse and other issues, what do you think freedom looks like for San Francisco's African-American community in 2021? What it looks like or what it should look like? What it should look like. Well, I think the first thing in San Francisco, uh, you know, one, freedom should look like Black people all over San Francisco, right? We we are a segregated city. A lot of people don't understand that and know that. The small black population that exists is really concentrated in one area. And so freedom looks like black people all over San Francisco and all 11 districts enjoying the city. Freedom looks like us being able to move about freely without people wanting to call the police on us because our daughters are at a lemonade stand. That's what freedom looks like for us. Being able to be a part of a city be able to contribute to the city, but also being able to receive the benefits of a city like San Francisco. All the resources and opportunity that exists here should be equitable for a black population. And that's not the case. Freedom looks like the police not bothering you because of color of your skin or because of reputation of a community that you may be in. And we have a long way to go to achieve all of that. You know, last summer you were the driving force behind the passage of the Karen Act, C-A-R-E-N Act. It's the Caution Against Racially Exploitative Non-Emergencies Act, which would subject people who called 911 based on racial bias to a civil penalty. Since this has gone into effect, have you seen any change, any drop off in these calls? And what kind of effect has it had on San Francisco? You know, I would love to say that the passage of the Karen Act stopped people from discriminating against black people and discriminating against people of color. But that's actually not the case. Just last week, we had a young Latino male uh, in a community and two white women decided that he shouldn't be there. All he was doing is going about his day-to-day daily business. And so some of the Latino community and some of the community protested in that area uh, to let people know that we're not gonna stand for that type of discrimination. And all this is caught on video. Uh, So you would think with the false accusations where people are trying to cause harm to black people while they're you know, out in Central Park uh, or when a girls at the lemonade stand or when black people are barbecuing or when a Filipino man is spray painting Black Lives Matter on his own home. These things are well documented. People have lost jobs. People have had their careers ruined. And you still see some people who unfortunately are gonna let their prejudice and racism override common sense decision-making and letting people be and live and enjoy the communities they're in. But the Karen Act, I think, will 
be a deterrence. I think that we're going to continue to make sure that it's known and get the information out so folks know what the CARIN Act is and that it exists. There's also state law that was passed by Assemblymember Rob Bonta before he became Attorney General that addresses similar calls for protected classes. All across the nation, there is an assault on our history and legacy. This is most visible in the misguided and misinformed attack on critical race theory and other teachings. Professors and school boards are being targeted, and there is major funding from conservative groups who seek to make this a wedge issue in the 2022 election. How have these issues affected the discussion of critical race theory in San Francisco schools, and how will you make sure students continue to have the facts about their history taught without political interference? Well, I think that, uh, you know, as we talk about critical race theory, a lot of people are still learning and trying to understand what that is. I will say here in San Francisco, we now have an ethnic studies program that's being built out and focused on making sure that all parts of history are taught so we can do things better to help make change and not repeat the cycles that existed. I kind of touched on this uh, a little bit before, but obviously a major issue in San Francisco continues to be gentrification. The African-American population is half of what it was in 1970, and the black middle class has largely left the city. How do you view gentrification right now, and can any of it be reversed to be beneficial for the black community in the city? Yeah, I mean, gentrification is, is a sad thing to see. I don't know if you ever saw The Last Black Man yeah, in San Francisco. I did see that. The main star was connected to this house that his grandfather had. And you know, I had similar experiences growing up with my great aunt's own homes out here. And we would spend Easter's and Thanksgiving's and Christmases over at these homes. And, you know, as they passed on and family sold houses, you know, I'm in a situation now where I don't have any blood family here in San Francisco that owns a home. Wow. Um, so I want, you know, think about that. You know, we have worked to, you know, do things like provide neighborhood preferences. So when certain new housing, affordable housing is built, black folks have an opportunity and a preference to move in. We also have right to return legislation on, in place for certain areas that are being revitalized and, and rebuilt so that when that new housing comes along, folks who lived there before, mainly black people have an opportunity to move back. So we're doing what we can from a policy standpoint, also working to make sure that more jobs and more opportunities exist in the city that are appealing to black people and doing a better job with the education system, because those are the things that are going to bring people back. And then my last question to you, man, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, go back and give one piece of advice to your teenage self, knowing what you know now and the journey you've made. What advice would that be? The main thing would be um, to, to fight against instant gratification um, and to understand that pretty much everything worth having takes time and patience to, yes. to develop and succeed at. Uh, you know, so, you know, instant gratification led me to juvenile hall. Instant gratification uh, led me to becoming a teenage father. Instant gratification is responsible for a lot of the things that made my road a little bit harder than it had to be. Uh, but, you know, now knowing that patience will, will get you to where you want to go and dedication and commitment which are all important, and perseverance is the main key to that. Well, Supervisor Shimon Walton, man, thank you for coming on Beyond 28 and 
dropping all that beautiful information on us and uh, continue success. Thank you, Mark, and thanks thanks for having me. And I just, you know, I'm humbled and appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation about some of the things we we're doing and trying to do here in San Francisco. Appreciate you. Derek Johnson is a formidable voice in the arena of African-American politics. During his time as president of the nation's oldest civil rights organization, the NAACP, they've landed a huge win in the Supreme Court with the 2017 Trump versus NAACP ruling that prevented the Trump administration from rescinding the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program, for young immigrants. A proud son of Detroit, Johnson is the NAACP's 19th president. We speak to him about what freedom means today in 2021 for black Americans. About two years ago, I had the opportunity to to meet a very, very interesting man, very instrumental man, a very important black man to this country. Uh, Derek Johnson, the president and CEO of the NAACP. Derek Johnson, welcome to Beyond 28, man. Oh, good to be on. So let's get right into it. Uh, My first question is, last week you had an opportunity to meet with President Biden to discuss voting rights with other civil rights leaders. He had just delivered one of the most passionate speeches of his presidency. He called for a new coalition to be formed to push back on voting laws. My question, though, is what do you see in addition to these powerful words? Are you seeing enough action behind Biden's speech? Yeah, you know, have a coalition to push back. I don't even I don't understand what that means, quite honestly. Uh, What we're looking at is the U.S. Senate. They have the opportunity to adopt public policy to stop the rash of vote suppression efforts. But in the Senate, they are allowing a procedural rule to prevent them from addressing a substantive constitutional right to ensure that the democracy we learned about, we expect to have, is a democracy that we actually can participate in and practice. Policymakers, elected officials, should not be in the position of selecting their voters It is the responsibility in a true democracy for voters to elect the policymakers or elected officials. There's many leaders in this uh, current political environment. The only way to stop this onslaught from the GOP is to get rid of the filibuster and allow legislation to pass with a narrow majority. What is your belief? Can there be meaningful change in an extremist GOP continues to stop any and all expansion of voter rights? Now, if you understand the, the, the history of this country, particularly in the Senate, the procedural rule of the filibuster was used in the 30s, 40s, 50s to impede progress. It was used by Southern Democrats who were segregationists, first to stop the full implementation of Brown versus Board of Education, Civil Rights Bill, Voting Rights Bill. It allowed them to create these structural systems of deficits that we know. The reason why for decades African-Americans did not qualify for Social Security is because Southern senators on adoption of that bill said they can only support it if agricultural and domestic workers were exempt. Well, 80% of African-Americans at that time were domestic or agricultural workers. And here we are in 2021, And Republican senators are using the same procedural tactic 
to impede progress, to subvert democracy, if you will. Uh, we should do away with this procedural rule. It is not in law, but our right to vote is constitutional, yeah. and we should protect the Constitution. Is it amazing now that there still are these trick doors, there still are these things that are being done? But I'll let you talk. Go ahead on that. Wait, no, no, you're right. It's trick doors. But listen, I'm a Detroit Pistons fan. I know we are undefeated, right? And it's a power <laughs> game, right? The Bad Boys was a power game. When you got on the court with the Pistons, uh, during the tenure of the bad boys, you knew you had, it was rough and tumble. You had to play. We are in the power game. And so sometimes people want to talk about, is it fair and all these other things? Well, no, it's not fair, but it's going to be done. We have to stand up across communities and demand better, demand more to assert our power so that the minority and corporate interests are not dominating and reigning over the majority of Americans. I remember back and I went to high school in San Jose, California history, but I always remember in my history class getting into it with the professor, who was a white professor, because I questioned how Columbus could have discovered a place that already had Indians living here. <laughs> like, and he didn't like yeah. that. And I, I would question him about the civil rights movement and things like that, and things that weren't in the book. So I, I say this to say, what, what are your thoughts on at least two dozen states banning critical race theory being taught in schools. It is a tool to conjure up fear and energy that the conservatives are also effective of doing. First, they want to run with defund the police and that buzzword only went so far. That was followed up by critical race theory. Uh, once this died down, there will be another buzz phrase just to generate fear and otherness and the us versus them mentality. Unfortunately, that's our political discourse. If you think about Fox News, they really have been cutting edge and pushing that us versus them type of mentality under this concept of being a news source and their furthest thing from a news source. And then you add on top of that social media platforms, which is like a super spreader of misinformation. And I hate the fact that History in its totality is being challenged, just like facts are being challenged. The late John Lewis once said that freedom is action. What direct action do you believe is required to turn the tide in such states like Texas, Georgia, and Florida? The Senate must adopt uh, legislation, a framework to protect the rights of individuals. This is not just one or two communities. This is about our democracy. Our system of governance is under a direct threat. It's a frontal attack. Can you imagine when we first met, what, two years ago, had one of us say, you know, I think in two years from now, there's going to be an insurrection at the United States Capitol and somebody's going to walk through the, the Capitol building with a Confederate flag. Yeah. We, we'd say not possible. Yeah. But we are at a tipping point where individuals have used so much in the realm of fear-mongering that it has opened the door for a level of boldness that demystifies what we would assume would have been logic just a few years ago, a few months ago. And so what we're looking at now is the necessity of the Senate to adopt public policy. That's the action to protect the rights to vote so all of American citizens and legitimate voters can have a voice in the direction of this nation. 
Recently, the NAACP is now offering to cover bail costs for the Texas Democrats facing arrest as they fight the regressive onslaught against voter rights. Quote, war has been declared on democracy, and we will support anyone who stands up to defend it. We are fully invested in good trouble, end quote. Obviously, good trouble is a reference to John Lewis, who faced so much in the civil rights era. Um, Can you place what's happening today in the larger context of history? Many have called these attacks on voting rights Jim Crow 2.0. It's the fight that we must wage, that the question has always been, uh, how do we as a community, how do this nation stand up with this promise, this social contract, and honor that contract that all men and women are endowed with certain inalienable rights? Yeah. And here we are fighting vigorously to protect our rights. I'm curious, when did your passion for helping Black people begin? What sparked it? Growing up in Detroit, I used to watch Coleman Young. When we hear that he was going to be on the news, we would go to see the news because we, we knew he was going to cuss on the news that night. <laughs> 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 but with that, you know, the message behind that was to protect Detroit is 80 percent black city that was under siege by the, the Reagan administration, under siege by, by the suburban communities and the business community who really abandoned the city because it was black. And I remember standing on the couch, punching the air when I seen Eyes on a Prize that first time. I, I couldn't believe it. That was in the early 80s. I saw it when I was about 10 years old. Yeah. I, I was infuriated, yeah. you know, getting to... Uh, undergrad, Tougaloo College, historically black school, and and really reading like I had never read before, and and then realizing some of the people that I was reading about were still alive and still involved, and I get to know, get to meet them, and get involved. I mean, I was hooked. Yeah, you know. So it was one of those things. Like the first book cover cover for me was uh, Fire Next Time, James Baldwin. Uh, I read it. I was like, okay, it was the letter to his nephew and all the warnings. And then that the next part. And I was just, I was just glued to the words because he talked about that experience of growing up in Harlem and all of the hurdles in front of him and how he had to maneuver between hurdles and make decisions. You know, that was my reality in, in Detroit. And being able to see the suffering and realize that so many people were in predicaments and situations that they should have never been in. Yeah. And that somebody had to be the voice to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. You recently tweeted out something, quote, democracy is not about race, but people will use race to subvert democracy. Break that down for me. The whole conversation around critical race theory is about fear. To try to capture uh, and energize a conservative base around fear so they can justify tax policy that actually hurt the very people that they want to, you know, embolden. This is masterful, that people are able to use language to motivate the masses to operate outside of their interests. Race has been the centerpiece of that, that otherness. You know, morality is used sometimes, but race in this country have been the primary driver of the conversation. What can the uh, average person do to get involved with the NAACP? And- what else scenarios where we are the largest race organization in the country? We're in 47 states. We're in local neighborhoods. What states are you not in? 
Well, you know, I don't have many cousins in Montana. <laughs> South, South, South Dakota. Okay. In uh, Idaho. We do have a unit, ironically, in North Dakota, but not South Dakota. Okay. Yeah, so huh. uh, uh, Alaska and Hawaii, all of the places. You know, we have so, you know, m- many of our activists are volunteers, and we, we really practice and believe in smart democracy, that individuals can come to the table and have a voice equal to every member in the table. And we encourage that. That's important. In terms of marches, it all depends on where in the country that uh, you you may exist at any given point. There could be some type of direct action in a community near you, depending on the issues the members in that community take on. Yeah, and that's the beautiful thing about the NAACP. We're not obviously we're not a, a connectional church where a bishop sit up high and sit the edict and everybody conform. But we're bottom up structure. You uh, have have um, said that meaningful attempt to raise the radical wealth gap must begin with the deck and student debt. What do you think else is required beyond student debt? The racial wealth gap is almost like a domino. You, you know, for many years, and it still exists today, the number one accelerator of, of wealth is home ownership. Can't own a home if you have an income debt ratio that's too high. The largest amount of debt in our community is student loans. And so I'm, a, I'm starting with the domino chip so we can get to closing the gap. Uh, entrepreneurship is a great accelerator to wipe out the uh, the wealth gap. But you, entrepreneurs need capital, and it's hard to get capital if your credit rating is poor, oftentimes because of the debt you, that you previously owned, and the number one piece of debt is student loans. Wow. You see, it, it's all connected. Yeah. It's been over a year since the massive protests that swept this nation in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Looking back at this past year, what your mind has changed as a result or has uh, improved and what has gotten worse? Uh, you know, what, what I thought was phenomenal in reaction was that the many individuals who took to the street in peaceful protest under the value proposition of Black Lives Matter. It really, it looked like America. It was black and white, young and old, male, female, and the fact that that took place, that I think that's a step forward. What's most frustrating, uh, this has got to be action. We still don't have that federal legislation to hold police officers accountable. We still don't have a publicly facing database of police misconduct. That must be done. Otherwise, we're going to continue to see incidents and episodes of Ahmaud Arbery. Or yeah. George Floyd. NAACP needs a man with face like you, because every day you fight, <laughs> man. <laughs> it picked the right man. <laughs> well, bro, it's a pleasure, and thank you for being on Beyond 28. All right, thanks a lot. Take care. Chairman of the Black Panther Party, Brother Hughes, right-hand man, Bobby Seal, bring him on. Brothers and sisters, I want to tonight have the chance to tell you in large mass something about the organizing of a black people's party on a level that dealt with black people's problems. Bobby Seale is a giant in the world of African-American political activism. He was co-founder of the Black Panther Party, with their uncompromising stand on black power, 
They literally put the Afro into African-American politics. And while we were saying we should overcome, the power structure sent his pigs down and they kept a beat to the tune of the song We Should Overcome with a billy club crushing our skulls. We got to stop it. Born in Dallas, Texas in 1936, he was the oldest of three children. Poverty and an abusive father led the family to move across the country to California, seeking out a better life in the Golden State. He was a student at Berkeley High School, and after graduation, he joined the U.S. Air Force in 1955. Spending three years in the Air Force, he was court-martialed and discharged for disobeying a colonel at Ellsworth Air Force Base in South Dakota. Moving back to the Bay Area, Seal attended Merritt College in Oakland, where he joined the Afro-American Association that promoted black separatism. It was here that he met Huey P. Newton at a rally protesting the Kennedy administration's blockade of Cuba. I was the master of ceremonies for the whole two, two and a half, three hour program. And it may have been a hundred or more or so people standing in the aisles. In the Civil War, 186,000 black men fought in the military service and we were promised freedom and we didn't get it. In World War II, 850,000 black men fought and we were promised freedom and we didn't get it. In the Korean conflict, the so-called police action, a war, we fought there and we didn't get it. Now here we go with the damn Vietnam War and we still ain't getting nothing but racist police brutality. Seal soon rejected the nonviolent civil rights movement of Martin Luther King and instead followed the militant doctrine of black strength and empowerment after hearing a speech by Malcolm X. In 1966, he created the Black Panthers along with Huey P. Newton as an armed force to protect a black community in Oakland. They were a new voice rejecting all compromise in pursuit of African-American political, economic, and social freedom. The Panthers quickly became a force in the town. The party realized at an early stage it was more to the struggle than just self-defense. And we became a full-fledged organization. And the Black Panther Party became a place where people came for answers to deal with situations. Community outreach, after-school classes for kids, legal aid, TB testing, transportation, assistance for the elderly, and distribution of free shoes to the poor were just some of the practical measures that the Panthers provided for the black community. Our government was not gonna provide health care. So we were gonna provide health care for the people. But Free Breakfast and Black Self-Reliance saw the organization branded as communists by the FBI and an enemy of the United States government. The police came in with guns to shut down breakfast programs in church basements routinely. What came into the newspapers was, Panthers teach children hate and violence. We were feeding them eggs and toast and milk. It's 4.9 million kids are fed annually through the, the government's free breakfast program. Now, the government free breakfast program was started because the Black Panther Party had a free breakfast program and we embarrassed the shadow. The success of its program saw Panther chapters spring up in many major American cities, with Seal taking an active role as an eloquent and fiery spokesman. During the police crackdown in the 1968 Chicago Democratic Party convention, he gave a speech that exhorted robust self-defense in the face of police violence. The next day, Tuesday, featured an event planned by the demonstrators, a speech in Lincoln Park by Black Panther chairman Bobby Seale. According to press accounts, Seale told the crowd of 2,000 angry protesters, if a pig comes up to us and starts swinging a billy club, you check around and see you've got your piece. You gotta down that pig in defense of yourself. Because if you pull it out and shoot it well, all I'm gonna do is pat you on the back and say, keep shooting. About 4,000 people heard Seal's oration in Lincoln Park 
after repeated police brutality. It would later be cited by authorities in charging Seal with inciting a riot. He and seven other defendants, known as the Chicago Eight, were tried for conspiracy to incite riots in a circus-like atmosphere. After asserting that he didn't have legal counsel, Seal was ordered by the judge, Julius Hoffman, to appear in court bound and gagged. The court watched in horror seeing a black man physically restrained day after day, unable to speak. This was to be one of the lasting images of this historic trial. A month into the trial, Seal's case was dismissed. The government declined to retry him on conspiracy charges. Never convicted in the case, Seal was, however, sentenced by Judge Hoffman to four years for criminal contempt of court for asserting that he didn't have representation. The contempt sentence was reversed on appeal. Seal renounced violence as a means to an end after his release from prison in 1970. He then began the task of reorganizing the Panthers. The breakfast programs were still in place, but the organization was suffering from attacks from the FBI and with internal power struggles. Uh, we expect way over 6,000 people to uh, uh, come down and get their free bags of groceries and also to register to vote so that in the future the black community and other poor oppressed people in any kind of vote so the people won't be asked by politicians to endorse them but the politicians will have to endorse people's community survival programs. Wanting a bigger stage to change the plight of his community, he ran for mayor of Oakland in 1973 come now second out of nine candidates, forcing a runoff. The election saw a record voter turnout, with the incumbent mayor, John Reading, winning a third four-year term with 70% of the votes cast. Growing tired of politics and the tribulations of the Panthers, Bobby turned to writing, producing A Lonely Rage in 1978, and even producing a cookbook in the 80s. By the late 80s, the radical had been rehabilitated by mainstream media as an important icon of the 60s. He appeared on talk shows documenting the struggles of the movement and the generation before. In 2002, Seal returned to Oakland. He's now in his mid-80s and he still continues to work with political activists wanting social change. We salute this lion of revolutionary energy. Thank you, Brother Seal. With the drumbeat of reparations forever growing louder, the words of Frederick Douglass are forever true. Quote, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the field. End quote. Listen again next month as we discuss African-American struggle and we celebrate African-American achievement here in the Bay Area and across America. Thank you for listening to our Voices of Freedom. Beyond 28 is brought to you by the Golden State Warriors and Chase. I'm your host, Mark Spears. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.